Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. If you're joining me for the first time, a special welcome to you. And to our returning listeners, thank you for your continued support. Today, we're going to dive in to the case of Gerald and Charlene Gallego, a couple better known as the sex slave killers, sometimes called the love slave killers. And what makes them unique is that they were a special serial killer duo of husband and wife. What they did was so stomach-churning that you would swear it was the plot of a slasher film. But unfortunately, this really happened, and it really happened to those who were most vulnerable. Active in the late 70s and the early 80s, their story is a grim chapter in American crime history. And if you've listened to a lot of these podcasts, you know that a lot of these serial killers and just general murderers, a lot of this happened in the 70s. I mean, seriously, what was it with the freaking 1970s? Now, Gerald, he came into this world in 1946. And Gerald was no stranger to a life of crime. He was actually the son of a murderer. Charlene was born 10 years later in 1956, and she had a more ordinary upbringing. Despite their different backgrounds, they ended up getting married in 1978, and that's when things took this really negative, that's being kind, turn. Their crime spree was the stuff of nightmares. They targeted young women and girls aged 13 to 24. And what they did is they would use their van and either trick or force their victims inside. And that's when the true horror began. These young women were held captive and Gerald would assault them, often with Charlene playing a part or at least going along with it. In just two years, they were responsible for taking the lives of at least 10 people across California, Oregon, and Nevada. Their method was always the same. Kidnap, assault, and then murder. Now, because of this episode, it's important for you to know about a few warnings before continuing to listen. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, sensitive themes, mature content, sexual assault, and drug abuse. So listener discretion is strongly advised. This is the story of Charlene and Gerald Gallego, their crimes, their victims, and how they were eventually caught. It was September of 1977, and Charlene Williams walked into a bar where she first met Gerald Gallegos. Now, Gerald, he was 31 at the time, and he had already been married seven 
times seven. Two of these marriages were to the same woman. So oftentimes when you read about Gerald, it will say that he's been married five times. So that's a that's the little discrepancy there. When the women that he was married to ran out of money, Gerald would often just leave them. Now, when he met Charlene, he was actually still married and he had a series of felonies under his belt already. When he was 12, he assaulted a six-year-old girl, which resulted in him being sentenced to a California youth facility. When he was grown and had children of his own, he even assaulted his own daughter and one of her friends. He'd been involved in robberies and had a history of drug-related offenses. He had been incarcerated multiple times and had violated his parole on many occasions. And I know that I've mentioned this before in other episodes that have been around this same time frame, this 1970s time frame. But it is so disturbing. How many criminals were let out of jail, even violated parole, and were just allowed back into society only to reoffend, oftentimes even worse, again? And here was Gerald just sitting in a bar when Charlene, who was just 20 years old, walked in. What she didn't know at the time was that this meeting would change her life forever. So what about Charlene? Well, Charlene, on the other hand, she had a very different background, but not one without its own issues. Her life started off really well, and she was raised in a supportive home. She did well in school, and she's reported to have been a pretty quiet child. She was also known to have a pretty high IQ, and she did well in school and music, and was especially gifted in violin. Her father was a well-known businessman who was the vice president of a chain of grocery stores. And because of this, he traveled a lot and often Charlene's mom would go with him. Now, when Charlene was younger, her mom happened to be injured in a car accident. And it was so bad that Charlene's mom was not able to go on any of these business trips any longer. So instead, Charlene went with her dad. As Charlene grew up, and became a young adult, she began to use drugs and alcohol. She also got a job as a clerk in a state office in Sacramento. Now, while she was here, it was said that she flirted openly and constantly with others in the workplace. Charlene was actually married for the first time at the age of 18. She married a guy who was pretty well off, but he was addicted to heroin. He states that Charlene was insistent on having a threesome with him, her, and a prostitute because she was in love with the idea of having a lesbian lover. Now, their marriage didn't last long, and evidently her husband, her first husband, hated the fact that Charlene's parents constantly interfered in the relationship. Now, not long after this, she got married again and this time to a soldier that Charlene described as, quote, a mama's boy. And it didn't take her long to get bored with him, and then they divorced. Charlene then began to have an affair with a married man. But this ended pretty quickly after Charlene asked this married man if she might have sex with him and his wife at the same time. The man quickly ended the relationship. Now remember, 
this is all from the time she was 18 until the time that she met Gerald at age 20. So all of this happened in a very, very short time frame. Now, after the married man decided to quickly end this relationship, Charlene actually attempted to unalive herself by overdosing on pills, but she survived. It wasn't long after this that she walked into the bar where she first met Gerald. Now, according to some reports, when Gerald or when Charlene first met Gerald and she walked into this bar, she thought that Gerald was a clean cut, nice guy. And Gerald liked Charlene instantly. After their first meeting, their relationship moved fast, so fast that within a week, a week, they were living together. Now, after they moved in together, Gerald seemed to change. Charlene at the time was working as a supermarket clerk, um, although it's unknown if this is the same supermarket chain her father was vice president of. If I had to guess, I would say yes. Gerald made it clear, though, that Charlene was expected to be the main earner, handing over all of her earnings to him. He even controlled what she wore. Now, despite all of this, Charlene found him thrilling. Now, a few months into living together, Gerald decided to bring home a 16-year-old exotic dancer, and all of them had intimate relations. It was something that Charlene had wanted from her other relationships, but it had never worked out until now. But while this young girl was in their home and the three were in bed together, Gerald didn't allow the women to touch one another. They were only allowed to touch him. Gerald, that day, had to head to work, but the two women stayed in the house. When he got home, he found that the two women had slept together. Now, this enraged Gerald, and he threw the 16-year-old girl out of an open window and then beat Charlene. It would later be assumed that this 16-year-old girl was the first victim of the serial killer couple, but this was never proven. Now, after Gerald witnessed this relationship between his wife and the 16-year-old, he refused to have relations with Charlene, saying that he had lost his libido and he wasn't able to perform. Now, Gerald at this time, he was working as a bartender and Charlene felt that the reason he didn't want to sleep with her any longer was because he was probably just having affairs at work. Now, after a year of being together, he told Charlene that in order to stay excited, he would need a pair of sex slaves. He asked Charlene to find them for him, and she agreed, mainly because it would satisfy her as well, having another female in bed with them. After Gerald told Charlene that he needed this pair of sex slaves, Charlene actually found out that she was two months pregnant. But regardless, when he came to her with this idea, she agreed to help him. On September 10th of 1978, Charlene and Gerald hopped into their 1973 Dodge van with airbrushed paintings of mountains on the side of it, and they drove to a mall. It was the Country Club Plaza Shopping Center. After they arrived, Gerald told Charlene to go inside and find two young girls and bring them out to the van. 
Now, Charlene, at first, she didn't want to do this. She didn't want to fail or to get caught. But Gerald pushed her, telling her she needed to act fast and do what he told her to do. So not long after she walks into the mall, she saw two girls that would work. Their names were Rhonda and Kippy, and they were 17 and 16 years old. Charlene befriended them and talked them into coming out to the van because Charlene said she had some marijuana out there. They thought it'd be fun, and they followed Charlene to the van. When they arrived and Charlene opened up the door, Gerald was there pointing a gun. He told them to get inside, and they were instantly tied up. As Gerald drove away from the mall, Charlene watched the girls. They hit Interstate 80 and headed towards the Sierra Nevada mountains. When they got to Baxter, California, they left the interstate and drove into some isolated foothills. And there, Gerald found a hidden area and got out of the van. He then told Charlene to wait for him, and he left her and the girls inside the van with a gun and a sleeping bag. After a few hours, he came back and he told Charlene to drive the van back to Sacramento and hang out with some friends. This way, she would create an alibi. He then told her to come back to this secluded spot in their Oldsmobile. Now, while she was gone, Gerald repeatedly assaulted both of the girls through the entire night. After doing what Gerald had told her to do, she came back to the spot and Gerald moved the girls into the back seat of the Oldsmobile. He sat there with them and told Charlene to drive to Slough House, California. Now, as Charlene drove, she felt that the conversation Gerald had with her sounded like he was going to release the girls. But then, all of a sudden, he told Charlene to stop the car. He forced the girls to cross a field into a ditch where he then hit them both with a tire iron. He then pulled out a 25 caliber pistol and shot each girl once in the head. Now, Kippy had tried to run after Gerald started to walk away, thinking that he'd accomplished what he wanted to. The bullet that had went towards Kippy had only grazed her, and she was still able to move. Gerald noticed this, went back, and fired three more shots into her head. Now, later on, much later on, after the two, Gerald and Charlene, were arrested, Charlene would end up telling a cellmate how ecstatic she felt during this crime. So the two decided to leave California because there were investigations into the two missing teenagers. The day after this happened, they headed to Reno and got married. Now, little did Charlene know that Gerald was still married to his most recent wife when this happened. Now, Charlene's parents, they were worried that their family name was going to be drugged through the mud. So they decided to help the couple out. Now, this is where it gets a, a little confusing. It's unknown how much or how little Charlene's parents actually knew about the crime. But the fact that they were worried about their own personal reputation leads you to believe that they knew exactly what was happening. So how exactly did Charlene's parents help? Well. They did what every normal family would do. They told Charlene 
to steal her cousin's birth certificate so that Gerald could change his name. Awesome parents, right? Gerald then got a fake driver's license and other documents thanks to this birth certificate. And just like that, his new name was Stephen Robert Fell. Now, things were somewhat normal, at least as normal as it could be for something like this, for the couple for a bit. Uh, Gerald drove for a meat distributor and Charlene worked in an office. In June of 1979, Gerald began again to think about kidnapping some girls. Now, you might wonder, what happened to the baby, right? Charlene was pregnant. Well, it turns out that Gerald wasn't happy about this, and so he made Charlene have an abortion. In the meantime, the couple is still in Reno, and in Reno, there is a large event called the Washoe County Fair, and it started in 1874 and actually still continues to this day. In 1979, it occurred in June and was the perfect place, Gerald thought, to find a couple more girls. Now, Gerald and Charlene headed to the fair, and they did find two girls, Brenda, who was 14, and Sandra, who was 13. Charlene again tricked them, but this time she instead asked if they would be willing to help hand out flyers for a few dollars. They agreed to this, and she then took them to the van to pick up these supposed flyers. Now, as they're walking out to the van, Gerald was following behind. And as they approached the van, Gerald pulled out his gun and showed it to the girls. Of course, they were petrified. They then got into the van, and once inside, they were tied up. They drove off, but first, but first, the couple decided to stop at a store to purchase a hammer and a shovel. Gerald then got on the interstate and drove north of Reno, but soon had Charlene take over driving so that he could get into the back of the van with the girls. As Charlene drove and watched in the rearview mirror, Gerald repeatedly sexually assaulted the two girls. Charlene then parked the van in a remote area of Humboldt Sink. When Gerald was ready, he then yanked Sandra, the 13-year-old, from the van and drug her towards a dry stream bed. He then grabbed the shovel from underneath one of the seats and quietly walked up behind Sandra, where he then hit her in the head repeatedly with a shovel. Gerald then did the same thing with Brenda. And after the girls had been killed, he dug a large pit, put the girls' naked bodies in it, and covered it with a rock. It was apparent that Gerald didn't even care about an alibi at this point. The first time that they kidnapped two girls, he made sure that Charlene headed somewhere else to create an alibi for them. But this time, he didn't even seem to care. Now, these two girls, they were listed as runaways for four years until Charlene confessed to their murders during the 1982 trial. Their remains weren't actually found and identified until 20 years later in November of 1999. Now, the following morning, after the Brenda and Sandra incident, the couple was back in Reno Charlene cleaned the van, but Gerald kept the hammer and the shovel. Brenda and Sandra were reported missing, 
But the problem was there was a bit of confusion in this case because it just so happened. I mean, geez, how weird is this? It just so happened that two girls who attended the fair did, in fact, run away to join the carnival. But it was not Brenda and Sandra, but it was assumed that it was. And so the investigation into their disappearance didn't go very far. Now, after Gerald and Charlene felt that the heat was off, they decided to go back to Sacramento. Back in Sacramento, Gerald began cheating on Charlene, but Charlene evidently was okay with it because it meant she didn't have to deal with him and his problems. He had often become impotent when he was with her. Now, his affair didn't last very long, began to lose its newness. And so again, he went to Charlene and told her it was time again to find some more girls. It was now April of 1980. So the couple at this point, they were still in Sacramento and decided to hang out in the parking lot of Tower Records and watch all of the teenagers going in and out. The problem was there happened to be a lot of police in the area, so they decided instead to go back to a place that had been lucky for them in before in the past, a mall. This time, it was the Sunrise Mall in Citrus Heights, about 20 minutes outside of Sacramento. Stacy and Karen were both 17. And even though they were a little bit older, they still took the bait when Charlene offered them free drugs and a ride in a cool, airbrushed van. Their M.O. was the same. As soon as the girls approached the van and the door opened up, there was Gerald pointing his gun at them. He then forced them inside and ordered Charlene to drive. Now, at first, the girls didn't take it seriously. They thought it was some kind of game. But as time went on, reality began to sink in. Charlene drove while Gerald assaulted the two girls. Again, he had Charlene drive to a remote location. This time, it was Limerick Canyon near Lovelock. He did the same thing as he did before with Brenda and Sandra. He took each girl, one by one, and hit them, not with a shovel this time, but with a hammer. It wasn't until July of 1980 that the girls' bodies were found in this remote Limerick Canyon, Nevada. Both of the girls' hands were tied with an uncommon variety of macrame rope. An autopsy revealed that they had suffered violent deaths caused by multiple blows to the head with a hammer or hammer-like object. Now, there is a time after this particular crime that Gerald and Charlene split up and Gerald started to become involved with a mistress in Oregon. And evidently, he moved here for quite some time, just leaving Charlene. Now, once Gerald realized that his mistress was pregnant, he decided to move back to Sacramento to be with Charlene and they took up right where they left off. In June of 1980, Linda, who was 21 and pregnant, was hitchhiking in Oregon on her way to a nearby town. Now, for some reason, I couldn't find the details on this, Gerald and Charlene happened to be driving down this same road in Oregon when they came across Linda. Now, Linda wasn't Gerald's usual type, especially being pregnant, but he pulled over and offered Linda a lift. And as soon as she climbed in, 
Gerald pulled a gun and tied her hands behind her back. They then drove to a meadow where he ordered Charlene to walk away and told Charlene he wouldn't quote-unquote do anything to Linda because she was pregnant. Now, when Charlene came back 15 or 20 minutes later, she noticed Linda putting her clothes back on. Gerald then retied her hands and drove to a beach. He drugged Linda from the van, knocked her unconscious, and strangled her. Using a hubcap, he dug in the sand until it was deep enough to hold Linda's body. Now, Linda's body was discovered by two German tourists two weeks later. Her wrists had been tied with yellow nylon rope. Police, now they initially thought that Linda had been killed by her boyfriend because there had been some history that he was being violent towards her. Now witnesses though, they'd come forward and said they saw Linda getting into this van, but the police were solely focused on the boyfriend by this time and were just totally planning on charging him with the murder. Now, as I said before, I couldn't find any information as to why the couple was in Oregon, so my first thought was that, well, hey, Gerald evidently had a pregnant mistress there. He'd been living with her for a time. Could this have been his mistress? Did Charlene even know about the mistress? There's a mention of Linda's quote-unquote boyfriend being abusive, which would obviously fit the bill of Gerald, but there's no conclusive evidence that Gerald and this boyfriend were actually one and the same. I just find it strange that A, they're in Oregon, and B, he decides to pull over and grab someone who is not his usual type and who happens to be pregnant. Now, this time frame and his mistress, according to court documents, was around April or so of 1980, and then this crime happened in June of 1980, so... The timeline doesn't quite add up because Linda was five months pregnant, but this doesn't mean to say that she wasn't pregnant for months before even telling Gerald. A month later, Gerald and Charlene started their day off by fishing in the Sacramento Delta. They then went to the Sail Inn, which is a bar in West Sacramento. While they were there, Gerald told Charlene that he wanted to rob the bar and get quote-unquote her too, meaning Virginia, the bartender. When the bar closed, Gerald and Charlene headed out and went to the van, but Gerald wasn't quite ready to leave. He instead waited until Virginia had left and closed up the bar. Gerald then forced Virginia into the van at gunpoint, and Charlene, as usual, drove. This time, though, Gerald didn't seem to care to head to a remote location. Instead, he told Charlene to drive them home. On the way to their house, Virginia was pleading with them, letting them know that she was worried about her children. After they arrived, he ordered Charlene to go inside the house while Gerald stayed outside in the van and assaulted Virginia. When he was done, he went inside, grabbed Charlene, and told her to drive to the location where they had been fishing earlier. And on the way, he strangled Virginia in the back of the van. They got rid of Virginia's body just outside of Clarksburg. Now, Virginia's body wasn't discovered until three months later. Her hands had been tied with fishing line, and her body was severely decomposed. 
Now, during this short period of these months, obviously, Gerald was having this affair with somebody in Oregon and, and so forth. And then he comes back to Charlene. This whole time, their relationship had been slowly falling apart. Gerald, who had exhibited violence toward Charlene in the past, became even more aggressive. And Charlene decided in September that, hey, I'm taking off. I'm just going to move back in with my parents. Gerald then ended up leaving town and ended up in a relationship with someone he had known before. By November, though, so this is just like almost just a month later, Gerald was back and Charlene agreed to meet up with him again. So on November 2nd, Gerald and Charlene took Charlene's parents' vehicle, an Oldsmobile, and said that they were going to go out for dinner and a movie. Now that night, they ended up at the sports room bar in Sacramento, and Gerald got thoroughly drunk. He told Charlene that he was, quote, getting that feeling again and wanted her to get him a girl. Charlene then drove her parents' Oldsmobile to a nearby shopping center where they noticed Craig and Mary, two college students, getting into their car. He ordered Charlene to stop, and Gerald got out and pointed a gun at the couple, telling them to get into the car. Now remember now, they're driving Charlene's parents' vehicle. Charlene saw Craig throw his car keys out the window and said something to Gerald. Gerald told Charlene to go look for these keys, but she couldn't find them. The keys, by the way, were found in the parking lot the next morning. Now, shortly after this incident began, a friend of Craig's, Andy, approached Craig's car. And Craig told Andy, hey, you don't belong here. He swore at him. He told him to leave. Charlene then slapped Andy and told him to go. Now, as they're taking off, Andy was smart enough to write down the license plate number as it left the parking lot and then told his friend Mike about it as Mike walked up to Andy just as his vehicle was leaving. Gerald and Charlene, now with Craig and Mary in the back, drove north towards a lake in El Dorado County, and then Gerald ordered Charlene to stop the car. He took Craig's wallet from him and asked Mary, quote, what are you doing with a bum like this? He then asked Charlene if she, quote-unquote, wanted Craig, and she said no. Gerald then told Craig to take off his shoes and get out of the vehicle. He then shot Craig three times in the head. He then instructed Charlene to drive to his apartment. And once there, he took Mary into the bedroom while Charlene stayed in the living room watching TV. After Gerald assaulted Mary, Mary had her hands tied with ribbon and then was forced back into the car. Charlene drove them back out into the country and just before daylight, they stopped at a field. Gerald ordered Mary out of the car and shot her three times. They then drove back to Gerald's apartment, where Charlene cleaned the car, grabbed all the laundry, the bed linens, and the coat that Gerald had worn, and threw it into a dumpster. When the car was all clean and everything was thrown out, they then went out for donuts. Yep, they went out for freaking donuts. After eating, they went back to Charlene's parents' house, 
where, after walking through the back door, they found the police there interviewing Charlene's parents. Turns out that Andy, that friend of Craig's who had noticed this strange goings-on in the parking lot and who had taken down the license plate number, he contacted the police right away. Now, since the car that they were driving was owned by Charlene's parents, it was easy to locate their house, right? As soon as they realized that there were police in the house, he told Charlene to not say anything, and then Gerald took off. Charlene walked inside. The police began to question Charlene, and she said that she'd been with her boyfriend, who she referred to as Stephen Fell, at a movie the night before. Now, as the police were talking with Charlene, the phone rang, and it was Gerald. He told Charlene to meet him at a nearby ice cream store. Charlene, instead, stayed home and continued to talk with the police. She told the police conflicting accounts of which car they'd been driving the night before, and then gave permission to search the car that had been driven. Now, remember, Charlene had already cleaned the car, so when the police searched it, the officers didn't find anything. After the police left, Charlene then left to go meet Gerald. He had decided to return to the lake area to move Craig's body. Now, first, they stopped at a store to buy a blanket to wrap Craig in. But when they got to the lake, they couldn't find Craig. Now, the police, they then headed to Gerald's apartment, but came back to Charlene's parents' house after they found no one there. While they were back at her parents' house, the police were notified that Craig's body had been found. He was fully clothed, but his shoes were gone. He had been shot three times in the head at point-blank range, and there was no sign of a struggle. His wallet was found near the body, along with three 25 caliber Winchester Western shells. More officers were then told to head to Gerald's apartment to wait for him to show up. So when Gerald and Charlene got back to Charlene's parents from, you know, trying to find Craig and they couldn't find Craig, they saw the police outside. So they then decided, whoops, you know, we're not going to go here. Let's go to Gerald's apartment. So they drive over there and again, police are everywhere. So they decided to run. They first drove to Reno and then went by bus to Salt Lake City. Now remember, they still have at this point in time her parents' vehicle, the Oldsmobile. So once they got to Reno, Gerald called Charlene's mom and told her that she could find her car in Reno and that she should probably change its tires. They then go to Salt Lake City, and in Salt Lake City, Charlene dyed her hair, she stole a purse to establish a new identity and asked her mom and dad to send her some money. Gerald and Charlene then took off again, and they headed to Denver and then to Pueblo, Colorado, where they got false birth certificates for themselves. So at some point, they talked by phone to Charlene's parents. And Charlene's parents at this point in time had an attorney, so her parents or the attorney didn't want to send any more money to their daughter and Gerald. So eventually, Gerald and Charlene took off to Omaha, where they now went by the names Steve Calloway and Charlene Ray Bell. They both tried to come up with several stories as to how they had met Craig and Mary. 
One story was that Charlene had met Mary in a restaurant lounge at the shopping center. They all then went to a bar, and Craig and Gerald had left the bar before the women did. Another story was that they had dropped Craig and Mary off at the parking lot and never saw them again. Now, Mary's body was found three weeks after Craig's. It appeared she had been fully clothed when she died, and her hands had been tied behind her back with ribbon. She had been shot twice in the head and once in the neck. And because of decomposition, it couldn't be determined if she had been assaulted before she died. Two, again, two 25 caliber brass casings were found near her body. Now, while in Omaha, Charlene's parents, again, were wiring the couple money. But while they waited for it to arrive, they were arrested. After their arrest, Gerald, who was brought back to Sacramento along with Charlene, Gerald was put into a police lineup where Andy, Craig's friend, identified him. The police then got a search warrant for Gerald's apartment and found some 25 caliber ammunition, but no 25 caliber weapon. Now, the ammunition that was found was in a partly full Winchester Western ammunition box. In an honest-to-goodness, true crime detective way, the police found out that Gerald had worked as a bartender at a local bar, and on two occasions, he had fired his gun, a Beretta automatic, into the ceiling, and afterwards, he had patched up the holes. So a detective went to the bar and recovered five slugs from where he had fired this gun. It was found that the slugs and those from the victim's bodies were fired from the same weapon and that the cartridge casings found near the two bodies came from the same weapon. The casings of the bullets matched the casings of the bullets that were found in Gerald's apartment. So in the meantime, okay, so Gerald's in jail. While Gerald's in jail, Charlene's mom visits him several times before his trial. He admitted to Charlene's mom that he had run into Craig and Mary in the parking lot and that he owned the gun that was used in the killings. He told her his defense would be, quote, diminished capacity because he had taken LSD and that he would willingly plead to second-degree murder and take a sentence of 15 years, quote, in a minute. He said that his story had to be planned carefully, not, quote-unquote, halfway, and that it had to be done with, quote, realistic thoughts in mind. He told her, quote, the only thing that they could prove for a fact is that it was my gun that did it and that they were in my car that night for fact. That's all. So what about Charlene? Well, Charlene got herself an attorney and went to the police on her own. She made up a story where she said that Gerald had introduced her to both victims in the parking lot, and they later went to Gerald's apartment. When she was asked why Craig's friend Andy was slapped, she said it was because he had stepped on her foot. So another lie. Charlene then said she last saw Craig and Mary after they all did cocaine in Gerald's living room, and then Gerald left with both of them. 
She further said that the next time she saw Gerald, it was the next morning and he had blood on his jacket and ordered her to throw it away. Now, during this time, Charlene actually gets a second attorney. And I'm sure this had everything to do with her parents. Um, After this first statement, Charlene goes and she gets this new attorney and she goes back to the police and recants her entire previous statement. She then gives the police another statement and decides to plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder with the understanding that she would be sentenced to 16 years and eight months in prison. Under this agreement, she was required to testify truthfully against Gerald and would get no immunity. So because of the information that Charlene provided to the police, they discovered that the couple was involved in not only the murders of Craig and Mary, but in the murders of Rhonda and Kippy in California, Brenda and Sandra in Nevada, Stacy and Karen in Nevada, Linda in Oregon, as well as Virginia in California, and then of course, Craig and Mary also in California. The thing was, was that many of these crimes happened in different jurisdictions. So Gerald actually went on trial in various states, at least two different states. Charlene then decided to make a similar deal in Nevada for the murders of Karen and Stacy. Now, Oregon, where Linda, uh, the pregnant Linda, had been murdered, Oregon decided not to file charges, but instead had California and Nevada handle all these trial costs. So Gerald, overly confident, decided to represent himself as his lawyer. Now, Charlene, of course, she agreed to testify against Gerald. Charlene testified that Gerald was abusive, that he controlled her finances, and he shamed her. Gerald attempted to discredit her by highlighting a love note that she wrote to him, labeling her as a drug addict, and then revealed a lesbian relationship in jail. So in this first trial, where Gerald is representing himself, as he's talking, he acknowledges the fact that legally he's defeated, but he asks the jury to please just trust him. What he's saying is just, you know, it's on the up and up. The jury did not trust him. Uh, He was sentenced to death on June 21st, 1983, for murdering Craig and Mary. Now, later, Gerald then faced charges in Nevada for killing Stacy, Karen, Brenda, and Sandra. Strong evidence from the Stacy and Karen case where Charlene had linked a rope to a rope in Gerald's car to the crime. Now, so in a second trial, which started in 1984, Gerald instead decided not to represent himself and instead went with a public defender. Now, the whole trial focused on discrediting Charlene, who described the final hours of Stacy and Karen. However, Gerald's attorney tried really hard to convince this jury that that Charlene was just not simply telling the truth. He didn't do his job, didn't convince the jury. They quickly found Gerald guilty and sentenced him to death again. So... What this means is this made Gerald one of the rare criminals to be on death row in two states at the same time. Now, after 
after Gerald was sentenced to death and he's in jail, he has always, of course, maintained his innocence after he was sentenced. And even though the two girls who had been taken from the Washoe County Fair in Nevada, the 14-year-old and the 13-year-old, DNA, DNA tests were done on them. They were identified as being Brenda and Sandra. Gerald denied involvement in these murders. He was never tried for those. Even though Charlene had told the police about their abduction and their murder. Now, Charlene, who has since gone back and used her maiden name, Charlene Williams, since the mid-1980s, was released from a Nevada prison in July of 1997. She evidently left California and agreed to register as a felon wherever she lived. Gerald, obviously in jail, he actually died on July 18, 2002, at the age of 56 in the Nevada Prison Systems Medical Center. Now, he was on death row, obviously, at Ely State Prison and died from rectal cancer that had spread to his liver and his lungs. The medical director described him as quiet and reasonable, that he didn't want any extra treatment or resuscitation. He had no final statements, evidently no visitors, and was heavily sedated at the time of his death. Now, since Charlene's release from prison in 1997, as I mentioned, she's kept a very low profile. As of today, uh, she would be approximately 68 years old, somewhere out there. So as we wrap up this look into their case, I wanted to focus on some moments of decency uh, that happened even during this entire tragedy. And one of these moments involves Craig, who, when he was being abducted, was remarkably brave. In a split-second decision, as his friend Andy is coming over, he urged his friend to get out of the situation and ultimately sacrificed his own life. This act of heroism serves as a reminder of the goodness that can come through even when the crappiest shit is happening. Now, regarding Charlene's parents, their role in this story is somewhat unclear. There's no clear evidence linking them to the couple's crimes. You know, they did send money to Charlene and Gerald as they tried to flee, but they also informed the, the authorities about this, which helped to contribute to the couple's capture. And, but the fact is, is that they seemed to aid them so much, even while these crimes were going on. It's a very complex situation, which actually raises a lot of questions. But evidently, they were never considered as part of this particular case. All this being said, this entire story reminds me of another one that was so eerily similar to this case called the Toolbox Killers. Now, I covered their story in episode three. They also operated in California, although they were in Southern California, but it was also in 1979. That episode covers other heartbreaking cases of young teenage victims at the hands of two very disturbed monsters. If you have the stomach for it, I barely did, and want to listen to it. It's episode three. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. 
We appreciate your support and the time you've spent with us today, seriously. If you found this episode informative and intriguing, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast platform. It helps me to continue to bring you more true crime stories. So until next time, stay curious, but safe. And thank you for being a part of this true crime community.